children's church, you may be dismissed, those three-year-old through third grade. Go give Johnny a bad time. <laughs> well, maybe not Johnny. Give Johnny a bad time. Love on Tammy and, his, and her boys. <laughs> uh, it's good to see all this morning. Oh, it was such a great time the last... Uh, the last few days, and I was just blessed beyond measure uh, to see the body of Christ at work. Um, it was truly a special thing to see all the people out in force and to hear all the testimonies. People kept saying and coming up and saying, man, you guys have such a special church, and it's because of all of you and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love for one another. We don't want to just have a church where we know a lot or do a lot, but that we love the Lord a lot. And, you know, nothing says more about God's love and then the way that we support one another. And I just saw that, and I just went home with a huge smile on my face last night, and just so much joy just thinking over the last few days, and I just saw so many people at work supporting one another, and, and so it was such a special time, and people were asking me, how in the world can you do all of this stuff uh, in all these events, and honestly, it was, it's my family. Um, I couldn't have done any of it without the family that I have. They just, it was a blast. My boys are already asking me, they're like, uh, can we smoke some? We haven't smoked any chicken. Let's smoke some chicken tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, smoker is done for a week. <laughs> and then I came to church, and I'm like, well, actually, I'm going to do some bacon and some ribs today. <laughs> so, yeah, Donald is like, yeah, yeah, there we go again. But, uh, you know, nothing says love like, you know, good barbecue. So, but anyway, yeah, no, we had a good time talking with Donald's friends. And Donald has friends, you know. <laughs> I was surprised, <laughs> and they weren't sore. <laughs> so anyway, if you work out with Donald, you know what I'm talking about. So, but yeah, we had a good time. Long, 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 long time friends, and it was a good time. And uh, talking with them, some old uh, army buddies, and it was good spending some time with them. Well, let's look at Scripture, and, and it's good to illustrate what we are talking about from a theological standpoint, knowing these things are true about being saved, being saved, being declared right in God's eyes by faith, and seeing illustrations, and biblical illustrations are the best because they were given to us by God. You know, one of the things is, is we talk about theology, that is the study of God and knowing God and learning about God, and people always often you know, talk about all of these theological principles, and they're like, oh, there's all this heresy, and where did all of these false teaching come from? And for me, one of my favorite things to do is to look through history and to study history, and at what point did people start to input humanistic thought? 
Or when do they start to think about like their ideas from a human level as being more important than God's ideas? And so I love to study that, and I trace, and I, and I love to just go down the rabbit trails and find all of the history, and it leading all the way back into Scripture, and say, oh, this is where people got off on a tangent. And I love to do that, and sometimes my days off are in front of my computer just chasing rabbit trails that I didn't get to share with everybody on Sunday. And I get, I get a lot of joy from it. And Paul gets to do the same thing here. And he says, now look, all that we've been talking about, having a special relationship with Jesus is found all through Scripture, all the way back to Abraham and to David. And so this morning, we get a look at these biblical examples of being justified by faith. And that this has been God's plan from the very beginning of eternity. Um, And the very beginning from creation. For all eternity, God has planned out salvation. And it's not just like a oops, like, oh man, made a mistake, I have to fix it. And it's like God knew from the very beginning that he had a plan for his glorification through justification by faith to be declared right in God's eyes. So how do we have this special relationship with God? It's a problem. A lot of people today say in order to have a special relationship, you have to do all sorts of things. There's a lot in the doing and a less on the emphasis on God's work. And so we see a lot of times God's work is demeaned. That had to be my favorite thing about the weddings yesterday and a church pulling off two weddings on the same day. And honestly, it was because of the body of Christ. It was you. But it was all because when God said, when they see your good works, that they might glorify your Father in heaven. And that's Honestly, what I saw happening all day, that was for a pastor. That was like, that was everything to me to see everybody glorifying the Lord. And we want to see that this morning. Well, let's pray and let's read our text, which we're just going to look at the first eight verses this morning, and then we'll dive into the rest in the following weeks. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, your living word, We thank you for the grace that you have given us, this majestic love in which you've poured out to us when you died on the cross for our sins. Jesus, thank you for being obedient. Thank you for living humbly in bodily form and, Lord, dying for us, doing that work, taking our place and rising again that we might be justified before our Father in heaven, to be declared right in God's eyes. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that amazing work. I pray that we would see these examples of men of faith and the reasoning uh, in their lives and what they put their faith in, that we would see these examples and that we might glorify you because of their examples, that we would know that putting our faith and trust in you is the only way to be declared right, to have salvation, from our sins. So Lord, I pray that you would just bless us 
this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 1 in Romans chapter 4, it says, And then, what then, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, was found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That truly is a blessing. And for the first three chapters, Paul has clearly established that a right relationship with God must come through faith and not works. That is this, and that has been the point, is that being in a right relationship with God has never been about works, our works, but has been solely about faith. It's been by faith. It's been about God's work, not ours. But for all eternity, it seems like through all of history, men have been trying to establish their right to come to God based on their works. All of religion does that. It's all about their works. Look at me. Look what I can do. And look, I should be declared right. But it's not based on works. It's based on faith. Paul is emphasizing this to clear up this misunderstanding about the gospel. He's saying, look, to the, the, Rome, to the church in Rome and to all of us, he says, look, I want you to understand the gospel. I want you to get it right. I want you to declare what's right to build up the body of Christ that is by faith and not by works. So in these verses, Paul selects two historical figures to illustrate to Israel and to the rest of the Gentiles to prove this point that it's by faith. And so he selects Abraham and David. You know, Abraham and David are two giants in in. Israel, right? Uh, You see these two amazing men that have done amazing things by God and through God, and they were also declared right before God, and that's amazing. But Abraham, did you know, was called a friend of God. So he says Abraham was called a friend of God in James chapter 2, 23, At the end, he says, and he was called a friend of God. That's amazing. We hear David, who was also declared uh, to be a man after God's own heart. These are two major giants of faith to everyone. We see that they did amazing things. And so Paul tackles this question, and he says, how exactly did they enter into this special relationship? How did they become right in God's eyes? How did they be called a friend of God? Or how did they be called, come to be called a man after God's own heart? And that's really the idea here. How can we be 
deemed special in God's eyes. Well, he gives us two examples, and that is this. Example number one is found in Abraham, verses 1 through 3 in our text. Now, in order to get this right, we need to look at Abraham's life. If you would, turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we see that God calls Abraham out of Babylon, or what would become Babylon, and in the area that was surrounded, what people say is close to where the Garden of Eden used to be. We don't know that for sure, but we know that a lot of uh, the major life had come from that area, and so we know that in the end times, we'll see that playing out, that they will go back to Babylon and begin to worship uh, wrongly there. But Abraham was called out of Ur and out of the Chaldees, out of Babylon, to a new land. In verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 12, if you're looking at it, you'll see that Abraham is ordered to get out of the land and to go to a new land that God is going to give to them. It's pretty amazing. Abraham says, okay, can you imagine being called by God, just standing there one day and saying, God says, hey, this is the God of the universe, the creator, uh, and I'm going to call you and I'm going to send you to a promised land, a land that I'll make just for you and your descendants. And I'm going to bless you and all the nations of the world through you. You're like, all right, that sounds great. And so he heads off to this promised land. Now you go down to verse 7. If your eyes go down there, you'll see that God comes to Abraham and said, this is the land. Here you go, and this is the land I will give you. In other words, he says, Abraham, you are now home. This is now your new home. And it's, a, it's pretty amazing. I've had the opportunity, and when I was an associate pastor, God is calling us down to California to, to uh, go down and visit, and, and that's where I became uh, first time to lead as a lead pastor or a senior pastor. And when we went down there, uh, originally I was going down there to become an, another associate, but I remember we went down there and we didn't want to move to California and we didn't want to go there and we get there the very first night, my wife turns to me and she goes, we're home. And I'm like, you can't say that. But she knew, she goes, I just know this is home. And then the same thing when we went and the very first night we, we went to Mary Ann's house and we were staying at Mary Ann's house and and we didn't come here to actually move here. We just figured we'd come here so we can say no again. And we, moved, we came up here, and Anissa turned over. And not only did Anissa, but two of my girls said, you know, this is home, isn't it? <laughs> and the very first night, she goes, this is home. And I'm like, this is crazy. But this is exactly what the same thing that God did to Abraham. Took him to a new land and said, this is your home. An amazing thing happens if you go down to verse uh, 15 or down to verse 10 and 13. Abraham doubts about the land which God sends to them. In, in verse 10, we see, and now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham is like, oh, well, there's hardship here. We need to move. And so he takes the family and he uproots and he goes down to Egypt in verse 10 through 13, Abraham doubts God will provide for him, so he leaves the promised land. Well, it's pretty amazing 
not only did he leave the promised land and he doubts what God says, but then he also doubts God will protect him. And he concocts a lie about Sarah because Sarah was beautiful. And he says, man, if, if the king of Egypt sees Sarah and wants Sarah for himself and he finds out that it's my wife, he's going to kill me and take Sarah for his own. So he concocts this lie and says, I'll just, this is my sister. And so maybe then he won't kill me. And verses 15 through 20, we see that he makes up this lie about Sarah. And you say, wow, this is crazy. I thought that Abraham had such great trust in the Lord. Well, we see in Genesis 16, verse 3, uh, he said he also, he disbelieves that God will give him a son, and so he commits adultery with Hagar to, you know, to force this son into existence. And we know that that's caused problems even to, to this day because the Arab nations are all actually uh, cousins and brothers to, to Israel. They're all related through Abraham. It's pretty amazing. So well, what can we say to all of this? If we look back in Abraham's life, we have to ask this question. Was Abraham right with God because of good works? It's interesting because we see that as the body of Abraham's life was filled with a lot of doubt, a lot of struggle. And we say, wow, that sounds a lot about like my life. That I, we've struggled sometimes and we think, well, God says to do this in the Bible. And I say, I'm not so sure if I can do that. And so we do something else. And then we find out, oops, I shouldn't have done that. And God is giving us a great example that it's not about our work. It's about God's work. There's no possible way that Abraham, body of work of his life, shows us that he was declared right before God because of his works. Martin Luther, the great reformer who was battling a works-based system with Catholicism, he said this, he said, Abraham found nothing in his work. He said, just like we find nothing in our work. You know, it's interesting, and back into Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 3 says, for what does the scripture say? And that's the, the thing that we're looking at this morning, is what does the scripture say? And in verses, uh, Genesis 15, verse 6, we see this very same quote as in Romans chapter 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was his trust in God that brought about God declaring Abraham right. But what was it that Abraham believed in? Did he just believe in a God? Because there is a lot of people today that say it's not important in, in what God, just any God, if you believe in a God, then that'll declare you right. Or you can be made right by just being good and believing in God or a higher power. There's a lot of that. I even saw it in a, when I was a pastor down in California. There was the, the new view going around was that, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that says there is no other name under heaven by which 
uh, men might be saved, the man Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? It, there, there's the emphasis on Jesus. And they were going around saying, no, 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 that, that's just talking about the work of Christ. But nobody has to know Jesus in order to be saved. And the thing was to say, Abraham didn't know Jesus. Right? And they said, Abraham didn't know Jesus. He wasn't even alive when Jesus died on the cross. He just believed in God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Well, let me tell you something. Abraham, uh, the point here is, is, the main point is, Abraham believed what God told him, and God counted his faith for righteousness. And what did God tell Abraham in Genesis 15? He told Abraham about Christ. In fact, Christ was present. In fact, in John chapter 8, if you want to turn there, and Abraham met God, we know that Abraham uh, met God on multiple occasions, and we know that Christ was present at one of those meetings. In fact, Jesus, in his own words, talks about this. And Abraham believed in Christ. In John chapter 8 and verse 53 through 58, listen to what happened. The Jews were all mad at Jesus, said, wait a minute, are you saying that you are greater than Abraham? Verse 53 says, and are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my father talking about God, who glorifies me, for whom you say he is our, our God, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He rejoiced in knowing that one day he would see the day when Christ's work was completed. Listen to this. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus, the Jews said to him, Are you not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am the great I am passage, Christ declaring that he is Yahweh, the I am, the God of the whole universe. But what he was declaring was that he, Abraham, knew about the specific work of Christ on the cross. Abraham believed that through his lineage, the Messiah, the Savior, would come. He didn't believe in, in a baby. He didn't believe that in the fact that God would give him his special baby, he believed in Christ. It was his belief in Christ that accredited his righteousness to his life. In other words, Abraham believed in Jesus, and at that moment, his faith was judiciously counted and declared by God right in his life. So here's the main question for us. Has that changed for us? This same belief that Abraham had in Christ, is that changed? Is the belief system for us the same? What has God said regarding our salvation? Well, 
He says a lot in John 3, 16, whoever believes, right? It's whoever believes, right? It says in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And John the Baptist said in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, right? And Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of the result of works, no one can boast. Just as it said in verse 2 of our text in Romans, uh, if Abraham was justified works, he has nothing to boast about but before God. It's all about boasting in God's work, nothing to do about our work. Peter says it in 1 Peter 1.5. It says, who are kept, we are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation. What has God said regarding our salvation? He has said the same thing. The verb in our text, it says reckoned, credited, or in your translation may be counted as righteousness, means to charge something to one's account or to be judiciously calculated something. That means that something was deposited into your account, not by your works. You were given something that you didn't produce. It's like going one day to your bank account and flying, finding that a, a large sum of money had been deposited. And you're wondering, how in the world did that get there? Because I didn't deposit that. I did know nothing to deserve that money. And that's what happens when God reckons or credits righteousness to our life. We did nothing to earn it. That in chapter 4, this is the main word in all of chapter 4. It's mentioned 11 times in Romans chapter 4. We could understand the word counted or accredited as being a judicial mental calculation by God in which he calculates our sin to be gone and his righteousness to be deposited to you. Now, here's the point. If a person believes on Jesus Christ, God makes this judicial mental calculation that he is righteous and that it has been accredited to us for our righteousness. If a person relies upon his own works or upon his own religion, God calculates that person as guilty and sinful. Our sin account will never be calculated or counted by God as gone or by good based on our good works. Paul makes this point when he gives us his example found in verse 4 and 5. And that is this. Paul, being a very logical thinker, he draws two rational conclusions based on the body of Scripture. If one is saved by works... He is not saved by grace. The idea here in verse 4, it says, if one has to work for salvation, then salvation is nothing more than a wage or a paycheck. Paul rationally is saying, when we are basing everything in our life based on our work, we're looking at the God of the universe and saying, you owe me my salvation. I have worked, now pay me what is due. Can you imagine standing before God and doing that? 
And God's like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I know that you've tried to do a lot of good things, but look at the body of your work. Can you imagine? But that's the idea of works-based religion. It's all about you saying to God, you owe me. And then he draws the second point in verse 5. He says, if one is saved by being accredited or a calculation, it cannot be by works. This verse in verse 5 is, was one of Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the Protestant reformers. It was their major verse to reform. Their idea was to reform and change the Catholic Church to go back to look at Scripture and to say that everything is based on God's work. To go back and say it's all about uh, faith alone in Christ alone based on Scripture alone. has nothing to do about us. And they fought against this works-based system. Paul is saying this. He says, I'll carefully explaining how this works. In verse 5, if a person does not do any good religious work, but believes on Jesus Christ and believes that by faith in him, God will declare him righteous. That is faith. That is real faith. And it is then judiciously calculated and accounted by God as being a right to your account. You will be then declared righteous before God. We are saved by this calculation or accreditation from God. And any person who believes that Jesus Christ is the only one, the only God and Savior who can save us from our sins will be saved regardless of any feelings or any level of faith and works. That's a problem today is there's a lot of people that say, I'm not sure if I have enough faith. I don't know if I have enough. I just don't feel good and I don't feel like I've just done enough good things. That's okay. Neither did David or Abraham. They needed the Lord. And that brings us to the third evidence this morning, the evidence of David in verses 6 through 8. By the way, this is a direct quote of Psalm 32. Most scholars say you know, this, that Psalm 32 is not in order because we read Psalm 51, which is David's account of, of crying out to God and say, forgive me for my sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then killing her husband to try to cover it all up. But Psalm 32 is really kind of an outflow of David's heart in dealing with his sin before God. And this is a body of evidence that he had no, he said, I am, I am a sinner. I, I need God's work in my life to be declared right. And Psalm 30, this is a direct quotation of Psalm 32. The essence of what Paul is bringing up here in verses 6 through 8 is this. The one who is truly blessed and has a true, truly special relationship with God, is the one who's been forgiven by God, and the one against whom God will not calculate his sin against him. 
That is a truly blessed person to say, look at all the body of your life and all the wrong things that you have ever done, all the wrong things that you have ever thought, and says, I do not hold you accountable to that. That is a blessing. Let me tell you about this blessing. He uses three main words, lawlessness, forgiven, and covered. Lawless deeds is this. It refers to sin that breaks the law of God. All sin, all the sin in in your life, your thoughts, your actions, everything you say, everything you do, everything that does not meet God's standard of perfection and holiness. That's lawless deeds. But then he talks about the blessed is the one who's forgiven. It's a picturesque word that means to send away. Now here, let me tell you something about this word that's amazing. This word was used by many in in Jewish history in connection with divorce. And you're like, what? Yeah. When somebody divorced, when in the Old Testament, when they talked about getting a certificate of divorce, it was that they would divorce and they would send the person away to break up something that was perfect and then to break it and to send away. And that was the idea, was to be sent away and to then no longer to have that, to be married to that person, to be sent away and totally divorced from that person. What God, the point here that Paul is making and that scripture is making is that we have this amazing separation and divorce from our sin. When we put our faith and trust in Christ based on his work, he says that when God forgives us, he has then separated us to divorce us from our sin and that we're sent away into a new and complete relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. The point is this, is that God separates us. He takes that sin that so permeates our flesh and our being and he divorces us from that and he unites us with himself and his righteousness. It's a beautiful picture of what God does that only he can do. I've never met anybody that can totally divorce himself from all sin, save the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of covered, whoop, did I give you, oh, covered isn't in there. The word covered means God no longer sees them. Covered, so we see lawless deeds that we are now divorced from, and they are covered with God's righteousness. Now, there's three great implications that God gives us here, or imputation, the implications of this that Paul's talking about is as there's imputation or being delivered that we see this, and we saw this in Sunday school this morning, that God calculates or imputes Adam's sin to all people. And this is important to understand, that it is imputed or it is declared to all people, and it, it, it permeates all people. There's no one that is without sin. But then there's a second great deliverance or imputation and characterization of our DNA and our body of work, of our life, and that is this, 
that God calculates a person's sin to Jesus Christ. That all of our sin was then given or laid upon Christ. And it was seen in, in several verses through the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, that God, and uh, verse 21, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that God calculates a believer's sin to Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. And then God calculates Christ's righteousness to the believer, this covering. What Paul is theologically wrestling with and that we all wrestle with here is right here is in this, David, when he quotes Psalm 32, is at that moment, God calculates a person's righteousness is at the same moment that God no longer calculates him as sinful. Does God do that? At the moment that he declares somebody right, is he declaring them no longer sinful in their life? And that is yes. That is what God does. When God says that one is righteous based on his work, he no longer then calculates to our account as one being sinful and deserving of his wrath. Wow. Now you're saying, the question comes, since David was such a terrible sinner against God, how could he enter into a great judicial calculation and deserve God's calculation of righteousness by faith, by faith in him. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Absolutely nothing. That's Paul's point. Here in this text, in these three great examples of whether it's through Abraham's life or whether it's through just logical thinking by Paul or whether it's in this example of David of how God worked and declared us right in our sinfulness state and calculating that to our life, his righteousness. How does all of this work? We see this beautiful picture, an example of how we are saved by faith. I want to give you some examples, some practical examples. I was reading through James Montgomery Boyce's uh, in, treaty of Romans he came, I've changed the wording a little bit, but these are beautiful implications or applications to our life, and that is this. We must affirm the importance of Scripture. What Paul is telling us is that all of Scripture has the same meaning. Everything in Scripture points to the same thing. We are sinful, God is holy, and God's body of work is, is it's his work that he did when he died on the cross for our sins to declare us right. We need to affirm we cannot separate Scripture and say that this portion is good and this portion is not even worthwhile. It all says the same thing. Paul took three chapters of Roman to explain how great our need is, and he's used all of Scripture, God used all of Scripture, to show us that it's by faith through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are declared right. So the importance of all of Scripture. The other one is trying to be saved by good works as hopeless. It would, would have been hopeless for Abraham. It would have been hopeless for Paul. It would have been hopeless for David. It was hopeless. It's hopeless for everyone. They were declared right 
by faith. Abraham was a good man, even a great man. He was a model in the Old Testament for being a great man. But yet he was not saved by being a great man. He was saved because of his faith in what God would do through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have confidence in the gospel. gospel. Through these evidences of all of Scripture, think about this. 2,000 years separated Abraham and David. And yet, the way that God saved both of them was the same. And the way that God declared us right before him and saved us, the same. We can have confidence in the gospel because it's always been the same. Abraham was saved not by some ability or goodness or good works, but by the same gospel that is being preached today. Anything that's the same for thousands of years, know it can be trusted. We are not saved. We are not saved by the quantity of our faith, the amount of our faith, but by the object of our faith. That's what we see here is this, it has nothing to do just by any faith. David was looking forward to the Messiah. Abraham was looking forward to the Messiah. It was all about Christ. It wasn't that they just did a lot of faithful things or good things. It was the object of their faith that mattered. What do you tether your faith to? Are you looking at your past life? Are you tethered to that? Are you looking at the the current status of your life, whether or not you have faith in the Lord? Are you looking at what you think your future holds? Is that where your faith is? Or is it just in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not about the size of our faith. It's about the size of our Lord Jesus Christ. His work. All of this is proof of Christ's salvation is timeless and it is valid. Many say Christianity was merely founded by Christ. It was just a good person, a good teacher, and Christianity was founded just you know a couple thousand years ago because of a good man. But what we see here is a body of work that spans all of eternity. It isn't that God's plan is always, it's not that Christianity was founded 2,000 years ago. It's that God has always planned his body of work from eternity past through eternity future. Salvation from our sin and God's wrath has always been about the Lord Jesus Christ. God's wrath and our sin is consumed because of what Christ did on the cross. He is our propitiation. He is our stand-in. And because of his resurrection from the dead, he has now imputed his righteousness to us. We are now declared right. What are you putting your faith in this morning? Do you understand the body of work that has been, that, that Paul is putting on display in Romans chapter 4? Do you understand the implications of what God has done? There's right here, just in these nine verses or eight verses, there's a thousand ways we can go theologically that answers a lot of the problems we see today. 
Everybody will tell you, in order to have a special relationship with Jesus or God, you have to do all these things. But it's not true. And I deserve, you know, it's like, look at me. I, I, I deserve all of these things in life. And because I deserve all these things, you owe me. That is a bill of goods that we're being sell, sold today. If you look at a lot of our culture and society, is like we have an owe me society. I deserve. Everybody is owed something. And we say that to God all the time. But God deserves our repentance. He deserves us to glorify him. What is your faith put in today? Is it what you think your status is or what you are owed or what your ability is? Or is it in the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you truly say that he is your friend and that you are a person after God's own heart. I can honestly say that my thoughts aren't always that there. <laughs> I can honestly say that I always, I'm not always thinking about God is my friend or that he might say that, but I can honestly, I know where my position is. I know that I am his friend, not because of my good deeds. I know that he is my friend because he died for me. He took my place. I know that I'm a man after God's own heart because of the righteousness which Christ delivered to me when he rose again for my sin. God has covered my sinfulness with his righteousness and has separated me for all eternity from my sin. That's how come I know I'm a man after God's own heart. Even though I know right now I still am a sinner. Where's your faith? Remember, it's not the amount of faith. It's in the object of your faith. Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're stumbling as a believer this morning, maybe it's because you've taken your eyes off the object of your faith. Put your eyes back on Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will straighten out your paths. He'll straighten out your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these great examples of faith this morning. That even in their sinfulness, you called them friend. You called them someone after your own heart. It was because they constantly ran back to you and put their faith in you, in your work. Lord, I pray that would be all of us today. If, no, if there's someone here that hasn't put their faith in you, that they're trusting their salvation, that they're trusting their whole eternity and their special relationship with you. They're not putting their faith and trust in your work when you died on the cross for our sins. The work of Christ, your eternal son. Lord, I pray that you, that Lord, that you would open up their heart and that they would know that they need to repent and turn to you and declare you right and that we are sinners. And so, Lord, I pray that you would save anyone this morning that is either listening or they, that has heard this gospel message this morning and that they would know that you have done this amazing work and that they'd put their faith and trust in you. And so, Lord, I... 
I pray that you would do many miracles and see many people that would come to know you and have this eternal relationship with you. Lord, we praise you and we glorify you for your great work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.